for our Bible study this evening. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Luke once again, Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> As you're turning there, let me remind you that what we're going to do this week on, when, on Thursday evening is we are doing a Christmas Eve service. And we'll just do it from 7 o'clock to 8 or just a few minutes after that. And it's a wonderful opportunity for you to be able to invite some friends, some uh, folk in the community to come. <coughs> We're going to be semi-cautious in how much publication we do just because some may not know our normal procedures. We want to make sure people feel comfortable. But by all means, invite folk and it will be a very, very clear gospel presentation along with singing and some other things that we have prepared. And then next Sunday we'll do a special Christmas morning. Uh, Christmas service. That'll be 8.30 and we'll repeat most of that again at the 10.30 service and then we won't have an evening but then the following week we'll do something again for the beginning of the new year and uh, kick that off. So we're glad that you're with us for those things. So plan ahead. But tonight what we want to do is continue in a series that we're talking about the different scenes of Christmas. And again, I'm going to apologize for those of you who may be viewing with us uh, for the first time. My voice, I have a case of laryngitis and I'm struggling through it. Hopefully it'll be gone by the time I finish this message. Okay? I wanted it to be gone by early this morning and it hasn't happened. But we're in a series <clears throat> that is dealing with different scenes that are very, very familiar. But tonight we're picking the least familiar scene of what happens. Let me set the scene for what happens here. We know according to scriptures that Jesus was one who as an individual when he came upon this earth, he was very subservient to the law. What I mean by that is this. We read in Galatians 4 that Jesus was made under the law. We read in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus came not to destroy the law. When Jesus was preaching at one time, he turned to all the people and said, which of you convicts me of sin where I have violated the law? Being a Jewish young person and one who grew up in that culture, that's why he was under the law. They were under those rules and regulations as Jewish individuals, so he's required to follow it. He's required to, required to follow it constantly throughout his life, and unlike anybody else, Jesus did it perfectly, continuously. What I am amazed at is the story we're reading this evening, the account, is Jesus, before he was even making his own choices, in the sense that he came and humbled himself, took on the form of a babe, a babe who would not make determination what the family should do, he still was fulfilling the law. We pick up that story in Luke chapter 2, where we start in where Jesus, as a young boy, we read when he was eight days old, verse 21, when the eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and then to offer sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. 
And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own heart also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about eighty-four years old, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings, prayers, and day and night. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. As we unfold the story, what we are very clear in knowing is that Mary and Joseph are following the law. In the very beginning of what we just read, they are going to fulfill three different rituals that were required by the Old Testament law. Not one that you're familiar with, but two others as well. The first ritual that is mentioned is that of circumcision of the boy child. And we know that that was something that was begun with Abraham and all the Jewish males in generations since that it was supposed to be done. It was a very important custom that it was supposed to be done when the boy is on his eighth day of age. There's medical reasons given for that that you can study and see for yourself. But what is interesting that of all the different activities that the Jews could get involved in, most of them were laid aside whenever something would overlap with the Sabbath day. But this one was very clear. Even if it's on the Sabbath day, the boy is to be circumcised on his eighth day. And so they were very, very uh, pointed. And this being happening very specifically, very right timing. And with Jewish culture and customs, what came to be is that on that eighth day when they would circumcise the boy, that's the day that they would name the child. And so Jesus, at eight years of age, though he's not in control of the situation, I say that with parentheses, round tongue and cheek, Mary and Joseph bring him to the temple to fulfill that which was required of the Old Testament for this child, Jesus, who was made under the law, who was fulfilling every aspect of the law. And so they had that circumcision. But there's another ritual mentioned in this passage. It's referred to as the purification. This was an Old Testament ritual that all the females had to follow who had given birth. The story, the account, and the explanations found in Leviticus chapter 12, the idea is after a mother has given birth, she can get up and do her normal routines and busyness of life, just like normal, except in the Jewish culture, she couldn't be involved with the religious activities. She couldn't go to the temple until she did the purification. She typically didn't go to the synagogue until she did the purification. And she couldn't get involved in any other feast or festival if it overlapped with those days after she gave birth. So what was required by the law is if you have a boy, on the boy's 40th day, you go and you make sacrifice for purification. If it's a girl, you wait until the 80th day. And so it's the boy's 40th day. It's the second ritual that's mentioned in this text. The times he doesn't specify that on the eighth day they went to the temple and then they do it again on the 40th day. But by telling us the circumcision, the purification, we understand that that's what happened. There's gaps of times in these verses. And so the woman was to bring an offering. She and her husband, she herself, was to bring an offering. And we know in the Old Testament it could include a lamb or it could include a lamb and a pigeon or if you were poor it could be two turtle doves or two pigeons. And that's where we understand from this text that Mary and Joseph were a poor family. They could give the poor man's offering. There's a third ritual that's mentioned in this text that we often don't look and we, uh, we just kind of read through. But unless we're very familiar with the Old Testament, it's called the redemption of the firstborn. 
This is another, another uh, act that if you, when you had your firstborn child, you had to do this third practice, this third ritual explained in Exodus 13. In the Old Testament, he made it very clear, all the firstborn boys belong to God. And if you were of the tribe of Levite, that means that your son, your firstborn, was going to be a part of the priesthood and have to serve. They were drafted. They had no choice. But if you were from any other tribe, you could redeem your child, your firstborn, in the sense that what you could do is you could pay five shekels, about a work week in our modern day, four days of full work. Those five shekels could be paid at the temple, or you could pay them in your local synagogue to take care of it and redeem your child. And so what happened is Mary and Joseph are down in Jerusalem. We know from the rest of the story from Matthew chapter 2 that they stayed in Bethlehem region, so they're very close to the temple, just six miles from Jerusalem. And so it was easy for them to get there on the eighth day, to get there for the 40th day, and to pay the temple tax or the shekel tax for redemption at the temple itself. And so Mary and Joseph are very specific. They are going to fulfill the law, which has an impact on the testimony and the life of Jesus, that Jesus fulfilled the law in every aspect, that Jesus was made under the law, that nobody could accuse him of violating the law in any way, shape, or form. And so if we're going to stop and say, wait a minute, what does this teach us? Let me give you some life lessons as we go through. Here is a very impacting life lesson. It is this. God always assigns the right persons to, for the job that he wants done. God makes no mistakes. In, in fact, what we know about this is we can go back in the Old Testament, we can say God assigned the right person to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt. Moses had the background, the familiarity. He, from his training as, as the prince of Egypt, we know from other records that he knew some of that very region because of the campaigns that he probably led of the Egyptian army before he left and became the deliverer. He was the right person for the right job. We know that when David goes out there, David's the right man to face Goliath. Nobody else had that, that compassion, that zeal to, to stand for the name of the Lord. Jonah, as much as Jonah didn't think so, he was the right man to go to Nineveh to preach. We know the same thing about the apostles. God has picked the right people. Peter was the right guy to be the leader of the early church because he had experienced success and failure, forgiveness. He knew what it was about and could share it with people. When we talk about who could record scriptures, God picked the right people. He picked scholars, he picked doctors, he picked people who are very specific in getting details. When God picked the parents of Jesus, he picked the right couple. He picked a couple who were going to follow the law, who they would make sure that their son, who was birthed and in their care, that he would make, they would make sure that he was, was subordinate to the law in every way, shape, or form, and there was going to be enough accusations. Nobody was going to be able to accuse Jesus as a boy of not fulfilling as a child of not following all those different rituals. They did them for completely, fully, and they even went the extra mile staying around Jerusalem so they could do it close to the temple. In application, we can make these observations and make, it, make the, the true assumptions that God always picks the right persons. When God picks the right person for you to be the marriage partner, God made no mistake. I find that, and I'm so impressed by that, as I watch my kids growing up and now that they've married and they're starting families, I couldn't have picked the better partners for my kids. 
that they're just the personalities and how they handle and they advise and they work with one another. My wife and I often say we are amazed at how God picked the exact right person and personality for each one of our four different kids. When we think about this thought that God always picks the right people, God made no mistake when he put you in the family you're in. God didn't make any mistakes when he put the kids in your family. How God put them in there so that you would be the right parent for them. You would be the right influence upon them. When we talk about how God puts people together, we can talk about God when it comes to churches and leadership and deacons and Sunday school teachers. God doesn't make mistakes. When God entrusts with some people some of the riches and some of, some of the uh, materials of this life, God makes no mistakes knowing that those individuals, they will be charitable. God makes no mistakes when all of a sudden he, he says, okay, I want to give you a trial because you will learn from this trial. I could put it in somebody else's life, but it may not make as much of an impact, but for you it'll work. I'm going to bring this person into your life because you're the right person to mentor them. Our God makes no mistakes when it comes to all these different areas of working and leading and guiding some of you into different ministries like the addiction ministry or working with some ladies or doing home Bible studies that some of you are doing. God picks the right people for the right job that he has. Let's continue on. Let's talk about something else here, about what God does. We're continuing the story, and we find out that what happens is Mary and and Joseph are there at the temple on one of those different visits. We know two of them for sure. All of a sudden, at the same moment, Simeon shows up. We already read that in verse 27. That says, he came by the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the law. We know the same thing happens down in verse 38. When Anna, coming in at that very instant, gave thanks likewise to the Lord. And so all of a sudden, Anna and Simeon show up just at the moment. Remember, this is happening where there are dozens of people, hundreds of people, going in and out of the temple on a daily basis, perhaps even thousands. And Simeon and Anna have been there a long time, but as we're going to see from their account. They're there constantly. But on this particular day, they come at this moment when Mary and Joseph happen to be there at that time, which strikes me as another important life's lesson. It is this, that God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is always perfect. You know, when we start looking at how, wow, it's a coincidence that I just so happened to run into this person at that moment, as a child of God, you and I understand coincidences are usually prearranged by God. That God, when it comes to connecting with people, with all of a sudden at a certain moment that 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 person you connect and you get into a conversation, you're able to share the gospel, there's a sensitivity that wasn't there before. God knew that. Or when all of a sudden you connect with some believer and just at that moment when you're connecting with them, they had a need and in your conversation, God knew that you could meet their need. God makes no mistakes in these opportune assignments and these these dates that he has set up. We know that it's true in the fact that even when God fulfills a promise, his timing is perfect. As we're going to see in this whole passage, there's multiple promises about the Messiah and his coming. And there's people waiting for it. And they've been waiting for a while. God has made no mistake in his timing. Jesus is coming when it's the exact best moment in history in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4 says. When it comes to God answering prayers, we think that God should be doing that yesterday already. I think that my voice should not be like this already last Sunday. 
And I don't understand why God's timing isn't getting it better as I want it to get better. But God's timing is perfect. There's a lesson that I need to learn. Maybe it's learned to be quiet. Okay. There's, God's timing is always perfect. God picks the right people for the right jobs. God's timing is always perfect, even if it means we have to wait a while. Like Simeon and Anna did. They've both been looking for the consolation of Israel. That's the Redeemer. They've been there for a long time expecting. But, but God that time makes us wait. His timing is always perfect. So we made a comment about Simeon and Anna. Let's fill in a little bit more. Let's fill in some of the details so that what we read and what we find out about them is we don't get a whole lot when we start reading about the man Simeon in verse 25 and 26. But when we put it all together, here's what we know. The, a tradition says that he was a priest. We don't know this for sure. But they say he was in the temple and he's involved with possibly some type of worship. That could be. We don't know. We just know he's there. We also know he's really old. It says it, that he's an elderly man. Tradition says he's 113. That's old. Okay, that's old in our day. That's really old in Bible days. But he's an elderly individual. What else do we know about him as we just kind of unpack the passage? The passage says that he was just. That's that same word that we use for Joseph that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Dekaianos, that idea that he is righteous in a right relationship. We would call him a New Testament believer. One who's born again. And so he's right with God. But he's also called very devout. Somebody who is very serious about his faith. He's God-fearing. He is, he is one that, when it talks about being uh, uh, fearful of sin, in the sense of running and fleeing from it, having a pure life, being very conscientious about his walk with the Lord. That's this man. Okay. We also know this, that he calls himself, when he starts talking in verse 29, he says that I'm a doulos of God. I'm a servant. So we know that he's a very humble individual. We know that he's a very dedicated individual. He's there in the temple. And we know that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now this is one of those rabbinic phrases that we find and read about in the first century. The consolation. The one who is going to be the comforter, the deliverer. This is Messiah. So you may even want to mark that. Looking for the consolation. Looking for the Messiah. The one who would restore Israel to all its glory. Anything else that we learn about this man? We know that he has a very close relationship to the Holy Spirit. Understand that three times it's mentioned him and the Holy Spirit. Him and the Holy Spirit. It mentions the Spirit is upon him. It mentions it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he shouldn't die until he sees the Messiah. It, he came to the temple at that moment led by the Spirit. Understand at this moment people were not indwelt by the Spirit. That doesn't happen until Pentecost. This is Old Testament time where the Holy Spirit would come on and come off of people. For him, that the Spirit is upon him is a very unique situation for him. He is one of those few of the Old Testament, some of the prophets, some of the kings. The Spirit came upon for a special ministry and a special occasion. So he's got a very unique relationship with the Lord. And he's being led by the Spirit. He's being guided. He's giving visions that way. So he's very yielded to the Lord. And he's very in tune with the Lord. He reminds me of that Old Testament character, that, that character of Enoch, where his, his epitaph is, Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more. This is Simeon, a New Testament Enoch, one who is very dedicated, one that we would look at as an elderly saint in our church, as a very, very godly influence and example. That's what we know about him. And, 
and as well we're going to see that he's extremely well versed in prophecies. He's going to make a lot of references to Jesus by using Old Testament prophetic terminology. We'll get to that in a few moments. But what he is best known for is his, his hymn. In the birth of Christ, there are five different hymns that are given. The Christmas songs. You have the one by Zacharias. You have the one by Elizabeth. You have the one by Mary. And you have then the one that is mentioned here. The fourth one would, uh, this is the third one in Luke. You have Joseph's comments elsewhere. But you have what is called this this idea of now you can dismiss me. Now I am able to depart. And it's the last of the Christmas hymns. And it is really a loaded, packed, full (coughs) passage of truth, as we're going to see in a few moments. But let's just conclude with him for just right now. He's a man of praise. He's a man of giving thanks and giving praise. Uh, let's, let's take a moment. Let's talk about Anna. What do we know about this other elderly saint in this story? We know that she is called a prophetess. That's rare. Miriam was called a prophetess. Deborah was called a prophetess. We have Bildad was called a prophetess. We have the different daughters of, of um, in the New Testament. His daughters were called prophetesses. Philip, thank you. Philip, his daughters. Outside of that, you don't have many prophetesses mentioned. And we have this one who is a proclaimer of the truth. We know this as well, that she's a daughter of Phanuel. Why that is put into the story, I think that it's probably just to affirm that this is a true person. These are real individuals. This isn't legendary. This is based on history. We, we know this as well. She's, uh, she says that she's of great age. Well, there's two possibilities here. It says that since she was a widow of 84 years, that means she's 84 years old, or it means that 84 years after she was married and her husband, there was seven years of marriage, and then he died, and she's lived another 84 years after that. That would put her right around 105 if she got married around age 14. Both of these are extremely older folk who would stand out in the crowd as being very, very wise senior saints. And so we know this much else about her, that she's very godly. This is a passage tells us that she's dedicated her life to temple service, that she just volunteered to work in the house of God, doing whatever she was able to do, but she focused in on fastings and prayers night and day. So she's extremely dedicated, even like we've already seen with Simeon. And so here she is, this lady. But the one thing that stands out that's very important, she too is looking for the consolation of Israel. She is looking for the Messiah's coming. You know, it got me to think that sometimes we have a mistaken idea. We think that a lot of the people in that day and age, they were just kind of moving on in life. And we wonder, did many of them think Messiah was coming? At that moment, there really was a messianic expectation. It was a growing expectation. We know that's true because if we start looking at Zachariah and Elizabeth, they both spoke about Messiah, Messiah, Messiah in their hymns. We know that's true. Oops, let me go back there. We know that it was true as well because Mary's hymn, (coughs) she talks about Messiah, the glory of the Israel. We know that Simeon and Anna, and in this story, it says that Anna goes and tells the others who are looking for the Messiah. So there had to be a group of people. How big it was, I don't know. 
But I do know this as well, that at this time in history, and Acts 5 uh, records this, that there was a, different people showing up and saying they're Messiah. And so there was, just even before Jesus came, there was a, a revolt that took place, history tells us, where people were, one man came and said, he's the Messiah. So there was this messianic tendencies going on. People had some of those thoughts. And it doesn't surprise us, you know, that wise men, where even they'll show up and they talk, and all Jerusalem is in an uproar over this idea that Messiah, the king of the Jews, has arrived. And we understand because as we go a little bit further down into the story, when John the Baptist was on the scene, all of Judea and all Jerusalem, it says, went out to see him and listen to him. So people were thinking Messiah. It wasn't a distant, forgotten idea, but they had this idea of Messiah, and they would have known about it because the prophet had talked about them being under domination, Messiah coming and putting off the domination. They're under Roman control. They can read scripture. <coughs> they can put two and two together the way we can, that there was going to be those five different kingdoms. They would understand Babylon being one of them. They would understand Medo-Persia. They would understand the Greeks. They can, they can understand the same thing. We can understand characteristics of those empires. They can understand the characteristic of the Roman Empire. They would understand that they're in that one stage of that fourth and final part of that, that earthly kingdom. So they would be expecting the next major kingdom was going to be Messiah's kingdom as they had limited understanding of all of history, but they would have that expectation. And, and the people wanted to be free. They wanted to get rid of the Romans. So for whatever reasons, religious or political, there was a messianic expectation. So it's no surprise that when Anna hears this, she's going to go and seek out those who have a spiritual expectation and say, hey, I saw the babe. The Messiah's here. Before we, we move on a little bit, we just want to acknowledge that she too is like, Zach, uh, is like Simeon. She's given to praise. She's given to thanksgiving. And so, uh, before I give you another life truth, let me remind you that what happens in this story is that when, when, when Simeon comes in, we are told <coughs> that he had been personally told by God that he would not die until he sees the Messiah. That's when he makes this comment for which this whole hymn is mentioned took him up in his arms and he said, let me now uh, depart. The word depart is die. It's the word to set the, uh, loosen the cord of a ship to go, take down the tent, release from prison, used in all those ways, but also is used by people to say, I want to leave, I want to die, I want to get out of here. So he's basically saying, I want to go because you have let me see the Messiah just as you promised me. Can I give you a life's truth out of that? Okay, out of that... <coughs> whole segment of these people expecting Messiah, about that promise of seeing the Messiah, I think this life truth is very important. It is that God always picks the right people. God's timing is always right. But this is the truism. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. In this story, we see two different levels of promises that God always keeps. What I mean by that is this. We see this universal these promises that apply on the big scale of politics, kingdoms, decrees worldwide, operations of multitudes of people. But we also see in this passage individual promise made to one person. 
and that is fulfilled. And it was on a one-to-one basis or on a king over the entire universe that he's controlling. If you and I pause for a second and say, okay, what universal promises are still ahead of us that God has given that he will keep? that involve all of mankind. We could put down, there will be a tribulation like never seen before. What we're experiencing right now is still not the tribulation, folk. Okay, it makes us even more fearful of the tribulation. But we're, we're still not there. There is coming a day, and we'll talk about that in the next months ahead about what, what's predicted. We know this promise. We won't see it. We're not going to live in it. We'll talk about that again in January, how the Lord has promised that we will be removed before Antichrist is revealed, that we shall escape the great tribulation that will last upon the entire earth, according to Revelation 3.10. We understand this. There's going to be rewards given to all who are faithful believers. We know that God is seeing, that God is not going not to leave you empty-handed, that God is saying, be faithful, be, be consistent, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor is not in vain. He's going to reward you for it. We know lost people will be judged by God. Sometimes we forget this. We are so enamored by the blessings that God has given us that we forget those who are unsaved, they're going to be damned to an eternal hell, <coughs> that it is a real situation. We understand this universal promise. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. That's a universal promise. We understand this fact. Jesus is coming back one day. You and I can't help but think it's got to be quick. Man, after 2020, you think he's coming January 1, 2021. And I don't think any of us would mind it if that happened. Okay? So we have the universal promises, but let's bring them back to one-on-one. What promises has God given us as individuals? Maybe not you specifically, but us as individuals in the Christian realm. What has he promised to us? He will never leave us or forsake us. Any others? We've got the Holy Spirit as our comforter, the promise that he dwells within us. Can you think of any other promises that you cling to? He'll never tempt us above we are able. He hears our prayers. And answers. Yeah, and answers. We have to add that to it. We were thinking the hearing the same way you were, that he's hearing and answering. What do you have, Jorge? Preparing a place for us in heaven. Excellent. Excellent. Yes, he's going to come. He's going to rapture us. All things work together for good. You and I can list out all of these. We can just be listening. That, to me, the third one I put up here is really precious because I use it so often. You know, that if I confess my sins, he still forgives me. The idea that, that we're not tempted above, that God supplies our needs, that his grace is sufficient, that we reap what we sow in a positive or a negative way. God is faithful to his promises. That's what stands out in this story. That he's sending his Messiah, just as was predicted, for the benefit of all nations. That, that Simeon, I promised you personally, you would see him. And I did it. I did. It's been years that you've been waiting, but I fulfill my promises to you. So we go back to the story. And we think, okay, here's a life truth. That God picks the right people for the right things. That God's timing is always right. That God always keeps his promises. Let me give you another one. And then let's develop it from the text. Number four is this. God's son is always the person of the hour. 
He is the, should be the center of attention at any and every moment. What I mean by that is this is what happens in the story. Jesus Christ is to be the focus of a setting where it's many or it's few when it comes to religious worship. That he should be the premier individual that's talked about. And it was true even when he was a baby that he became the center of attention. For, you know, here it is when Simeon and Anna come in both of them are prompted. We read in verse 28, we read in verse 38. When they see the child, they understand him, they are prompted to give thanks. They are just prompted to give praise and thanksgiving. Why is that? Why is it that she's so motivated to go tell other people? Because they understand who this Jesus is. They understand what he does. It's seen in that hymn that Simeon makes. Now, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace according to your word in mine eyes. And he starts talking about who this Jesus is. He says in verse 30, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Now you folk know this. You watching, you probably are familiar with this. But understand that as he is led by the Spirit, he is going to say some revelatory truth about Jesus. That is so important. He's going to say, God, I have seen your salvation. That, that immediately, though you and I, and Andy's testimony fits this so well about how sometimes we grow up in churches, but we don't understand the totality of what Jesus means, what the Word of God means. That this whole emphasis that Simeon is making is salvation is in a person. It's not in a procedure or a ritual or a system. It's not involved in some type of churchiness. It's all about the person of Jesus Christ. And again, you know that. You've heard that. But, it is all, but you and I, just to remind ourselves that what Simeon understood, and he's a Jew working in the temple of all places. He's a religious leader. He's an influence on others. But he's going to be saying to all these people who are coming to do ritual, it's not about ritualism. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ which is just a tremendous thought for that man at that moment in that setting. That that idea that Jesus Christ, you have to know this one in order to get to heaven. And Simeon makes the comment that he's not only the Savior, uh, the salvation of the Jews, but he says, a light to lighten the Gentiles. This man's speaking this in the temple in the place in the inner courts that typically non, non-Jews couldn't visit. And he's saying, this babe, he is salvation to the entire world. What a profound thought. Well, well, you and I understand that from the words of Jesus, how Jesus emphasized this time and time again, that salvation is only by him, not by church, not by ritual, but it's all about him, that no man can come but by me. There's no salvation in any other, any other system, any other person. It's all about Jesus. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. That as many as received him, the idea of not just as many as did the church thing or did the temple. No, as many as received him, to them gave he power. God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him, that whole idea of the personal relationship, he that believes on him is not condemned. He that believes it not is already condemned. That, that thought that John points out and he says when he sees Jesus, away from the temple, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Where we read in Timothy's writing, where Paul wrote to Timothy, there is one God, one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. It's all Christ for our salvation. And you and I know that. We understand that theologically. But just to stop and say, we have to this Christmas season remind ourselves, I'm saved. 
Not because I believed, plus I'm a good person and I'm a really good Christian, I'm working well. It's all about Jesus. It's about making sure he is magnified, that he is appreciated, that he is exalted, not him plus, look at, look at our church. No, it's Jesus Christ. It's all about him. So he makes it clear. He says, this child is salvation in the flesh. He is the provider. He is the only means of salvation. Then he says, he is the glory of Israel. Well, if you were a Jew living back then, you would understand what he meant. This is the child who's going to restore us to our golden years. This is the one who's going to get Israel elevated above all nations. We're going to be blessed by those who bless. You know, God's going to bless them. If you curse us, what's he talking about? That in the future, Israel is going to be an exalted nation. This is the child. This is the person that's going to lift Israel up to its, to its promised prominent position. So he's making it very clear as he speaks about this child that he's the glory of Israel. Then he says he is set for the fall and for the rising again of many. And we read that here in this middle of the passage of verse 34 when he's talking to Mary in particular and pointing out the child. We, we I'm going to say we. There's lots of people that debate what it really means. The, the specific application about set for the rise and fall. Let me give you the four, the four possibilities that are usually mentioned just for the sake and you, you're going to have to come to your own conclusion. Some say this is the idea of judgment day that he's referring to. Some people are going to rise to heaven. Others are going to fall to hell because of what they did with Jesus. That's a possibility. Some will look at it and say this is this whole idea of salvation. They fall under conviction and then they rise in faith. Okay, that's a possibility. It still surrounds Jesus Christ. Some say this. This is a prediction of Jesus' own experiences. That Jesus will be rejected. He's going to be put down. He's going to fall in the eyes of many. But then he's going to rise again. Or some will say, well, this is talking about the Jews and how they respond to Jesus. In context, he's talking about the glory of Israel. He's talking about the salvation that starts in Israel. And what they mean is that whole idea that many will stumble. Do you remember the rock of rejection, the stone of stumbling that's mentioned in the Old Testament and then re-mentioned in the book of Acts? Jesus is that rock of offense. People will trip over him. They won't believe. They'll be upset by him because he's pointing out truth, pointing out their own darkness, and they don't want anything to do with them. But others, they will respond, and as a result of faith in Christ, they will rise with him. I'm not sure which one of those it is. But either any of those four, it brings us back to this idea. Our eternal destiny is all wrapped up in Jesus. How we respond to Jesus Christ. And that's what he is making very clear at that moment that he is speaking. That Jesus is the determiner of your destiny. What would you do with Jesus? Then he says he is a sign which shall be spoken against. The word sign, you may want to mark it here. It's the word miracles. It's the miracles. John says that by these signs, people come to believe. It's the same word. It's a word that plays even off the name of Simeon, very close to it. It's that idea of miracles taking place that point to God. He says Jesus is a sign. Well, we know that's true. His birth was a sign. The sign shall be to you that a virgin shall conceive. His, his whole life is filled with signs, with miracles that are supernatural. And yet, for all the miracles he's done, he's attacked. This is a prophecy that's it's fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, think with me what, I, what we think. Was Jesus' own conception attacked? Sure. 
Later on, we be not born of fornication. When Jesus did miracles, and it was very evident he was from God, how was he attacked when it came to his miracles? He's empowered by, by Satan. Okay, so his miracles that he does, the signs that are evident, he's still going to be attacked for them. And he was. When you come to the greatest of the miracles that he performed, his resurrection, how was it attacked by the Jews? They took his body. Yeah, they snatched his body. That They basically said the disciples stole his body. The next major miraculous intervention that Jesus will make in planet earth is his second coming. And what do we read in Peter about people in the second coming? They are still mocking and ridiculing it and making fun of it. Time and time again, Simeon said, he's going to do miracles. He's going to be a life of miracles. He's going to be performing them. But people are going to attack. We know that's true. That this is a supernatural worker. That everything points that he's God. He's God. He's God. He's salvation. He's the one that's going to deliver. What do you do with Jesus? It's going to make all the difference. And yet we know that he's going to be the victorious one in the very end for all the criticisms. It's at that moment that he turns and makes this comment to Mary. That he says, Mary, that this child, you're, it, it, he's going to impact you. He says, that yea, a sword shall pierce through your own soul. And we understand. All of us know exactly what he meant. He's telling Mary that there's going to come a day where your heart's going to be broken by what they do to Jesus. And was that fulfilled? Did Mary see him being, being tortured and then on the cross? We know that's true. And then he wraps up describing Jesus by saying that many of the thoughts of hearts will be revealed. Well, you and I would understand that. You understand Scripture, that that is implying that Jesus knows the thoughts and the intents of all of our hearts. That not only does he know, but what does that allow him to be able to do one day for all people? To judge them. To judge them. So it's very clear that he's, he's exalting this Jesus. He's making him pre- preeminent. He is doing what the book of Colossians told us over the last few, few weeks and months that we studied it. Make Christ preeminent. Make Christ preeminent. Here he is in the temple in the place that they were so proud of. It's such a beautiful building. And they had such wonderful worship, ceremony, and ritual. And Simeon is all not enamored with the building and the gold and, and all the lights and all the rituals. Simeon's enamored with Christ. Anna's enamored with Christ. And he got their attention. And he got their praise. And he got their worship. And it was the fitting and proper thing to do because of who he is. So that's why I say that, you know, you and I, we get excited about people. We saw that this is the last campaign. We saw how people just got really you know, enthusiastic. Well, actually, more about the guy on the left than the guy on the right. Okay. But the, the crowds just were, they were just embracing this person and just going way out and just gathering and cheering. And we understand that that can happen. You and I, and it's okay to, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be political and be caring, but you and I should be mostly enamored with who? With Jesus Christ. Okay, it's not wrong to be politically savvy and to be involved and go to those things. But you and I have to remember the man of the hour is Jesus Christ. He's the person of the hour, of every hour, of every day, of every month. And he's the one that we're going to give account to. 
And so a life principle is making sure that God's son is always the person of the hour. Let's do this final thought, okay? Godly people, as I look at the text, they have several characteristics that, that are very much in common with all godly people. Simeon and Anna are godly. Mary and Joseph are godly. We understand that. We know that. We've, we've already talked about it. What we know is that one of the major similar characteristics is they're normal people. Godly people are just normal people going through normal life experiences. We have to get this out of our mind that godly people are super saints who never struggle. That's not true. When we look at Mary and Joseph and just think about what they're going through at this moment, at this time, they're a young couple starting off in life. We talked about them and their individualities and their experiences. They're starting off in life. They've had the normal challenges of a young lady being pregnant with a miracle pregnancy, trying to explain that to family, having the, uh, having the family response, being ostracized, the difficulty of being newlyweds and your family's against you. It's a battle. It's a struggle. And here they were, as you, all of a sudden they have a birth of a child. Do you remember the first time you brought them home from the hospital and you were inexperienced and if you didn't have family around, how it was a scary thing. It was a challenging thing. Those, you know, it was so wonderful that at least you could go to sleep for hours and hours and hours and they wouldn't wake you up. That doesn't happen, right? There's the typical challenges of no sleep, of life disrupted. And you were so used to the two of you just operating alone and all of a sudden this third party comes in and throws your life totally in upheaval. It's normal, it's normal that they would have those experiences. And then all of a sudden shepherds come. Just days before this or weeks before this, you were visited in a manger when you just delivered. You know, in the delivery room, here shows up a bunch of mangy shepherds and they've got the story of angels talking to them too. So that would be something positive in all of this. Something to pick you back up. But then you have to think, what are we going to do in tomorrow? What are we going to do this week and next week? And remember, we're talking now eight days and then 40 days that they're in this region. They've got to come up with a job. They've got to come up with a place to live. They're going to stay in Bethlehem. Why they don't go back to Nazareth? I'm going to make the assumption that's because of the pressure of family, the being unwelcomed back home, that they stay in Bethlehem. But that means a new job. And, and they have lots of money in their pocket, right? No, we know that's not true. Okay? They didn't get much for wedding gifts. How do we know that? Because when they made sacrifice, they give what type of sacrifice? The poor man's sacrifice. So they've got struggles. They're trying to get on their feet. And this is a battle. This is a difficult moment. She's still trying to piece everything together. To ponder means to piece it together. She's trying to figure this all out. The angels have spoken. And it's a miracle. This is Messiah. How are we supposed to do this? What are we supposed to do? This is God's son. You know, is, this, is, this gonna, is he going to grow normal? Is he going to eat normal? Is he going to do the normal body functions? You know, this is Jesus. This is, this is somebody special. But is he all of a sudden, when he's, you know, three weeks from now, is he going to speak out with full sentences? You know, oh, it, it's just that normal situation that they're facing a normal life. A normal life. He's going to end up being a normal kid. Despite all the stories about what Jesus does and how Joseph makes the mistake when he cuts a board too short and Jesus grabs the board and stretches it, those are false. Jesus is a normal kid. They're going through normal life experiences, but they're godly. Then we start thinking about Simeon and Anna. They're normal people. They're old. 
but they're still normal people. They're godly, but they're still normal people. As being in their, let's, let's, let's put her at 84, or maybe the 104, I don't know. But are there challenges as your body gets older? <laughs> I'm going to ask it this way. Are there days that it isn't a challenge as your body gets older? Okay. So it, it's just, there's, there's like, she lost a husband. She experienced what some of you do. She buried a loved one. She knows the pain. She knows the agony of what it's like to lose and be lonely. Okay, I want to serve the Lord, but that's still, while you're serving the Lord, there's still the hurt. There's still the loneliness. There's still the agony. She, they're going through life experience. For years, they've been waiting. You know, they've been, they, they're like many of you. The rapture has to come. The rapture, we say it this way. The rapture has to come. I can't believe we're still here. Surely the rapture had to happen in the year 2012, and we're still here. Yeah, it can't, we can't go into 2021. They've been saying it pre-rapture. They've been saying, he's got to come. It can't get much worse. Now Herod's on the throne, and he's a kook. He's a nut. It can't get any worse. They've got, all, they've got normal life situations like you. So when we think about godly people, they're just like you, of the same flesh. Isn't it just like Elijah, that he was of the same t- struggles, and yet he was a man of prayer? That, that's talked about. So here we have godly people are normal people facing normal life. Beyond that, let me give you the other commonalities. Godly people keep following God's word. Godly people keep following God's word. These guys went to the temple, did what they're supposed to do. The world is in a real dark moment, but they're going to do what they're supposed to do. So they went to the temple, they made the sacrifices. Time and time again, they did their visits like they're supposed to do. Simeon and Anna, they've completed the vows that they have taken, and they're going to do what they've committed to do in serving the Lord, following his word. By the way, if they're following God's word, what else must come before that? Do you, know, do you follow what I'm saying? Before you can obey the word of God, you've got to, you got to know the word of God. So there are individuals, they know what they're supposed to do. They've learned. So godly people have these commonalities. They're people who follow the word of God. They're people who know the word of God. They're in the word of God. Something else that stands out, they're given to praise and thanksgiving. These folk, that doesn't mean they never have down moments, they never have struggles, they didn't have loneliness, they didn't have fears or trepidation, but the idea is that they're, they're saying, okay, Lord, I'm keeping perspective. I've got to keep the perspective that we're trusting in the Lord. The Lord is in control. Have you had to use that phrase and look in the mirror in 2020? Have you had to pause and say, remember, God is in control? Has that ever happened to you during these past months? To just remind yourself, all things work together for good. Because you get those days where you're just stressed and frustrated, and you have to just pause and think, now wait a minute. It's time to just get God is in control. To God be the glory, great things he is doing. And so there are people who, you read in the passage, they're giving praise. Herod's still on the throne. The Romans still are, are over the city. They still got taxes to pay. There's still going to be persecution of the Jews, but they're giving thanksgiving for what God is doing. Something else that stands out is this. They focus on Christ. 
We've already talked about that. They gave their focus on Jesus Christ. And in that sense, they honor and they praise him. They rehearse who he is, what he's going to do. They tell others about him. I think it's important for us to rehearse what Christ has done as well as what has he promised he will do. To tell others about Christ, such an impact. They take time, Mary does, to reflect, to meditate, to mull over. This is one of the several times that it records she then ponders these ideas. She thinks them through. So let's do it this Christmas season. Let's take the cue from these folk. And let's see if maybe this Christmas we can make it a little bit better by spending some extra time in God's word. God, this Christmas, I'm going to take an extra hour sometime during the week. I'm going to read an entire section of scripture that I haven't read for a while. God, I'm going to do something this Christmas. There's been a specific command. Maybe it's, maybe it's the command of stretching out and loving somebody that you've put upon my heart. Maybe it's forgiving somebody that I really need to forgive that person. Maybe the command has been put on my heart, your heart, to be able to be charitable to some widow, which you're commanded to be loving towards the widows, to visit them. Maybe the command is to make things right with somebody. Maybe the command is that you go and share the gospel with somebody. But you're going to take one of the commands that God has been impressing upon you for the last days, weeks, and you're going to say, I'm going to put feet to it. This is a Christmas that I'm going to put feet to one singular command that I know I'm supposed to do. Maybe the command is so simple that you're supposed to really be an encouragement to your spouse or family member, and you haven't been that, but you're going to do it. And you're going to say, I'm going to make some action. Take time to praise this Christmas. Take time to praise. Give thanks. Maybe, maybe this Christmas it's a good thing to write a thank you letter to Jesus for what he has taught you during COVID what he has done in your life in the midst of all this stuff, knowing that, that he, his timing is always perfect, that he always connects things properly. Maybe what you should do this Christmas is take one meal and have a birthday party and focus on Jesus. And I'm not saying 24-7, but maybe you want to just as a family do something or maybe just watch one of the Christian films about Christ just to be reflecting upon him a little bit more this Christmas season. I know there's so many Hallmark movies about Christmas. And they're all so wonderful. They have the same plot, every one of them. Girl meets guy. They don't get along for a while. They end up getting married on Christmas Eve. That, you've heard all the Hallmark movies now. I just told you. All of them are that same thing. So maybe you say, I'm going to pick something. And maybe we and the kids, we're just going to do a life of Christ for one evening. And just think about Christ. And talk about him and make it one evening about Jesus. Maybe what you want to do this Christmas is tell somebody about him. Invite somebody over. Make sure you wear the mask, I know. Okay. But tell them about Christ. And share with him. Maybe, maybe you need to just mull over. Oh man, are we gone long? I am so sorry. I just heard voices in the hall and didn't even look at the clock for about 20 minutes. You work at this Christmas honoring Jesus Christ and magnifying him. 